Remain standing. I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, this morning looking at verse 29. Once more, let's ask God for his blessing to give us ears to hear his word. Father John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold, we ask that you would give us the eyes of faith to see Christ our Savior and to behold more of his glory as our Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, the day after his interrogation by the priests and Levites and Pharisees, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him. And John has already told this delegation that he, John, is not the Christ. He has affirmed that his baptism with water is to make ready for the one who is coming after him. That the cleansing from sin and the renewing of the soul that his baptism points to is actually going to be fulfilled by this one who comes after John. And now, in verse 29, John the Baptist presents Jesus to Israel as God's atonement to redeem his people from their sin. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So let us also hear with humility and with joy and with faith and with love that God redeems his people from sin through the sacrifice of his Lamb, Jesus Christ. First, let's consider what it means that Christ is the Lamb. The Old Testament gives us many examples of animal sacrifice. Even as early as Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, we learn that Abel brought a sacrifice from the best of his flocks. When Noah departed from the ark, he offered sacrifices of clean animals, of which he kept seven of every kind in the ark. When Abraham was told by God to offer his own son, Isaac, in sacrifice, Isaac asked his father on the way to Mount Moriah, Behold the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? To which Abraham replied, The Lord himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And indeed the Lord did provide a substitute for Isaac, a ram caught in the thicket. When God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, they were to mark their doors with the blood of a lamb so that the destroyer would not smite their households as he was smiting all of Egypt. In the law of Moses, the Lord gave Israel careful instructions about many types of offerings, about the uh, sacrifices for atonement, which is specifically important for our text. Morning and evening, a lamb was to be sacrificed every day at the sanctuary. On the Day of Atonement, the priest was to pronounce the sins of the people over the head of the scapegoat and then send it into exile in the desert, bearing away the sins of the people. Another goat was then taken and slaughtered 
It's blood being poured out for the atonement of the people. All of these Old Testament sacrifices were types and shadows that pointed forward to Christ in anticipation of his full and final sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 explains, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then he goes on to contrast this perfected work of Jesus with the imperfect work of those Old Testament sacrifices. He says, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? And he goes on in chapter 10, to show the relationship of the Old Testament sacrifices to Christ, saying, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, but not the very things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So the ongoing nature of the sacrificial system spoke of its imperfection. For If it had made them perfect, they would have ceased to be offered. Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices that happen over and over again, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. When John the Baptist announces, Behold the Lamb, he points to Christ as the fulfillment of those Old Testament sacrifices, which leads to the end of the sacrificial system's operations. In the book of Hebrews, the Christians were exhorted to remember this sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice so that they would not be drawn back into the shadows of the Jewish temple ritual. Now that Christ has come, we must not return to those modes of worship in order to cleanse our conscience. There is no power in those modes of worship to cleanse the conscience. And if there is no power to cleanse the conscience in those divinely revealed ordinances of the Mosaic Law, then how much less should we turn to other rituals and other worldly means to try to bring peace to our guilty consciences. We need to hear John's testimony. Behold the Lamb as the only one who can bring peace of conscience. So what are we to do with the ceremonial law of the Old Testament? Well, many Christians, sadly, have nothing to do with it. And that's a great mistake. As God's word, those laws still have profit for us. But we don't practice those laws as the ancient Israelites did. Instead, they continue to bear witness to us about Christ. From that sacrificial legislation, we learn about Christ's substitutionary atonement. He is the ram caught in the thicket to substitute for the death of Isaac. 
He is the scapegoat sent into exile in the desert for our sins. His blood was taken in exchange for ours, his life for our lives. Behold, the Lamb. But let's also consider this great mystery that Christ is God's Lamb. Now, all of the animals of the Old Testament sacrifice belonged to God. So in a real way, every sacrifice was God's own provision for making peace between himself and his people. But this title for Christ speaks of a more personal, more intimate, more ultimate connection between God and Christ, the Lamb. We might recall here the parable that Nathan told David when he confronted David's sin with Bathsheba. He said that there was a poor man who had one little ewe lamb that he loved like a daughter. It was his dear companion. But when his rich neighbor had an unexpected guest, he took the poor man's little lamb, slaughtered it, and served it up for a meal. When David heard this, he was understandably moved. Here was a lamb that was not raised as a farm animal, but as a daughter, to use Nathan's description. This lamb was in the man's affections, not in the man's stable. It was brought up with his children. It ate from his food, and Nathan even tells us it drank from the man's own cup. You've got to love an animal to let it drink from your cup. It lay in his bosom at night. If a man can be so attached to a lamb that does not even share that man's nature, then think of how much more dear Christ, the Lamb of God, is to God the Father. He was described in verse 18 as dwelling in the bosom of the Father. In John 17, Jesus will speak of the love that he enjoyed with the Father before the world was made. The Son, Jesus could say, always pleased the Father. And so God the Father, who loves his Son supremely, gave his only begotten Son as his sacrificial lamb. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the love of God the Father. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. Now we've considered the person and work of Christ under the title of Lamb of God, so I want to consider a bit of the fruit of this saving work, that Christ takes away the sin of the world. When I read the word sin of the world, I can't help but recall R.C. Sproul's description of sin as cosmic treason. Of course, the word translated world here is the Greek word cosmos, from which we derive the English word cosmos. And so here, sin is conceived of in terms of its cosmic dimensions. Sin, in this declaration, is in the singular. Rather than saying sins plural, he says sin singular to encompass every sin in all of its aspects and all of its effects. Sin is the defying of God's rule. Sin is the dishonor of God's holiness. Sin brings defilement upon our conscience. It brings dominion over our will. Sin brings defeat of our soul in death. 
Because sin defies God's rule, it must be punished as high treason against heaven. As we'll see this afternoon in our study of the Shorter Catechism, every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come. Ezekiel prophesied, the soul that sins, it shall die. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. For the Lamb of God to take away sin, he must, like the atonement sacrifices of old, he must be slaughtered in the place of the sinner, the innocent in the place of the guilty. Sin as treason against God is not simply swept under the rug as a bit of dust. It must be answered with perfect justice. Only in this way is the rule of God maintained with justice and righteousness. This is how Paul explains the death of Christ and its necessity in Romans 3, 25 through 26. It's necessary, not only for our salvation, but the death of Christ was necessary to uphold the righteousness of God our judge. When we think of a judge justifying a guilty person, we would say that judge is unjust to justify the guilty. And yet that's what God does when he forgives our sins and justifies us. He justifies the guilty. How can he do that and escape the charge of himself being an unjust judge? Paul explains, Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. That means his blood is the appeasement of the justice of God. It's the satisfaction of the justice of God. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God in his mercy, God in his forbearance forgave sins. He passed over those sins. Think about the sin of David with Bathsheba. Think about the sin of of Abraham and Sarah with the treatment of Hagar. Think of all the sins of all the saints. God in his mercy and his forbearance passed over them. And here at the cross, God is declaring his righteousness even in the forgiveness of these sins. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. This title, the Lamb of God, points explicitly to the work of Jesus Christ as substitutionary atonement. Sin defies God's rule, but the Lamb takes the punishment for that treason. In addition to bearing the punishment of sin, the Lamb also subdues us to the rule of of God. Part of taking sin away is bringing the reign of God to bear upon the souls of men. And the Lamb of Revelation, as you recall, if you've read the book of Revelation, the Lamb goes forth to war. And He's a victorious Lamb. And His dominion in your soul is part of that victory. Furthermore, sin dishonors God's holy person. And so the Lamb takes away sin by restoring sinners to honor God. In Ezekiel, the Lord complained against Israel that their sin and consequent punishment has defiled his name among the nations. And so God says that he will redeem Israel from their sin and restore them to himself, not because they deserve it, but for the honor and glory of his name. 
And now the Lamb of God taketh away the sin of the world for the honor of God's name. Puritan pastor and Bible commentator Matthew Henry said it well. He said, He, Jesus, being mediator between God and man, takes away that which is above anything offensive to the holiness of God and destructive to the happiness of man. Now we've already considered how the Lamb of God takes away the offense to the holiness of God. So let's take a moment to consider how the Lamb takes away sin as that which is destructive of man's happiness. Sin as what is destructive of your happiness. We've said that sin defies his rule and dishonors God's person. That is the Godward attack of sin. But there is also a manward attack of sin, which we have described in three ways. The defilement of the conscience, the dominion over the will, and the defeat of the soul in death. How does the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world and deal with these effects of sin? Well, to deal with the defilement of conscience, the Lamb of God gives us full assurance of the forgiveness of sins by his blood. When Jesus said to the men who brought a woman caught in adultery to be judged by them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. They one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last, went away. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. When the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, says to you, Neither do I condemn thee, you have a clear conscience. Your guilt is taken away. This is what the Apostle Paul calls justification. God declares the guilty to be righteous because the Lamb of God has taken their sin and guilt upon himself and satisfied the justice of God on their behalf in his own death. Therefore, says Paul, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God and thus we have peace of conscience because the Lamb takes away the defilement of sin. To deal with sin's dominion, the Lamb of God, who is also the Good Shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep, breaking sin's power to control our will. He breaks that power. In John 8, 34-36, we read that Jesus said to the Jews, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. So here's the natural condition of humanity. In bondage to sin... And he says, The servant abideth not in the house forever, but the Son abideth forever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Free from sin. Free from sin's dominion. So the Lamb of God not only justifies us, He also sanctifies us by His blood. In fact, the word taketh away in Greek is a present participle, which many take as a continuous action. Taking away. Constantly taking away. So, for example, the great Reformed Anglican J.C. Ryle commented, He is daily taking it away from everyone that believes on Him. 
daily purging, daily cleansing, daily washing the souls of his people, daily granting and supplying fresh supplies of mercy. He did not cease to work for his saints when he died for them on the cross. He lives in heaven as a priest to present his sacrifice continually before God. He is ever taking away sin. But the Lamb of God in taking away sin not only justifies and sanctifies us, he also vivifies and glorifies us. He deals with the defilement of sin in justification. He deals with the dominion of sin in sanctification. And he deals with the defeat of the soul in death by resurrection. Alive together with Christ. And whose sin does he take away? John says, the sin of the world. Now, contrary to our Arminian friends, and they are our friends, John the Baptist is not declaring a universal atonement in which every individual's sin is taken away by the Lamb of God. Would that it were so, we would love that to be the case. What a better world we would live in. But alas, the totality of Scripture, as well as experience, teaches us that sin has not been taken away from every soul. For the Arminian to be correct, the uh, taketh away would have to be hypothetical or conditional or somehow incomplete. The Lamb would have had to have left something undone that man needs to come along and complete in order for his work to be perfected. Thus, John the Baptist should have said something like, Behold the Lamb of God who offereth to take away the sin of the world. Or the Lamb of God who nearly taketh away the sin of the world. But we know that's not what the Baptist message was. Atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God is a definite, effective, and full atonement. He left nothing undone so that he can say from the cross, It is finished. He doesn't ask for our help. He doesn't ask for our partnership in this great work of atonement. Quite fittingly, Jesus says to the twelve disciples on the night of his arrest, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone. Alone. Jesus goes to the cross. Alone. No disciples, no believers, no one to go with him because the work of atonement is his alone. And yet I am not alone, Jesus says, because the Father is with me. Christ alone taketh away the sin of the world, not Christ and Peter, not Christ and John, not Christ and Mary, not Christ and the believer, but Christ alone taketh away the sin of the world. No, he does not take away the sin of every individual. You, must mis you, you misunderstand the word world if you think that every instance of that word means every individual. Rather, John the Baptist is anticipating the international scope of Christ's atonement. He is the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, the Savior of the nations. He has come to redeem his elect, as Revelation says repeatedly, from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
We take it for granted because we've grown up with this truth, but this is quite a remarkable thing in the Bible. Interestingly, F.F. Bruce noted that the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation are the only New Testament writings to use the word translated lamb as a title for Christ. In Revelation, the lamb is the conquering lamb. He suffered and rose again. His conquering power is indicated in Revelation by seven horns, which are the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit anointing him for dominion as king of kings and lord of lords. Horns are for an animal's defense and offense. Large and many horns signify strength and power. Now, while we may see the lamb as gentle and lowly, led silently to the slaughter, let us not forget the other side of this imagery. Christ is no unwilling victim. He does not go to the grave in defeat. In death, he charges the grave as a conqueror. Because Christ taketh away the sin of the world, we can boast death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does John the Baptist say to us as he declares the full atonement of the Lamb of God? What is the imperative of this gospel message? Well, there's one imperative. The very first word of verse 29. Behold, fix your eyes, the eyes of your heart, fix your faith on the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lord says in Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look unto me. John the Baptist would say to you, Stop beholding yourself. Stop telling yourself I'm enough. Stop beholding your good deeds as though they are some religious resume that you present as an application to heaven. God is not impressed with our resumes. Stop beholding the self-help gurus and literature that claim to have the solution for all that ails you. Stop beholding pop spirituality that says that you are your own little God and you can shape reality around your desires. John says to those who question him, You have asked me if I am the Christ, or if I am Elijah, or if I am the great prophet, and I have told you, no, no, no. Now, stop looking at me, and behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You cannot carry your own sin away, and still return to God. If you carry your own sin away, you will carry it straight to hell. (coughs) You can carry it in the basket of all of your religious devotion and you will still carry it straight to hell. You cannot atone for your sin by following the good shepherd. You should follow the good shepherd. But following Jesus by trying to live the way that Jesus lived will not atone for your sins. You will find that no matter how hard you try to live up to Jesus, you will always fall short. You cannot live up to him. You can only behold in him your salvation. 
Behold the Lamb for your justification. Behold the Lamb for your sanctification. Behold the Lamb for your resurrection from the dead. Behold the Lamb for your peace with God and for your return to God's rule over your life. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Teach us your way, O Lord, and we will walk in your paths. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Amen.